Well, we want to we want to press on in our study of Second uh, Timothy four verse two, but we need to kind of take a take a brief huddle here. Not a brief. The whole sermon would be a huddle. I call it a timeout, <laughs> and I think I have a timeout to call. Uh, I want to call a timeout and just kind of uh, reflect on verse two, principally the three words that we studied last week. Kruksaw Tan Laga and preach the word. I want to do this because I realized, and this is like the frustration of preaching when you get a insider clarity Tuesday or Wednesday, right? That's the most frustrating thing. Uh, the second most frustrating is when you get and you figure out a think of a joke or a humor like on the drive home. <laughs> I tell my wife, and she's like, "That would have been so good during the message." That's the second most frustrating thing. But uh, and I realized um, we had thought one way so long about preach the word that it is a significant issue for us to think differently. Uh, what came to mind was um, I don't know if you guys, some of you guys know my testimony. I grew, up, I was, I was born in New York, uh, Bronx Hospital, Flatbush Avenue. My my, mo- my my dad was a student at NYU, and my mom was uh, supporting him through school. And uh, people are like, oh, that's why you have that accent. And I'm like, I left when I was six months old. <laughs> that's not the reason. Too many bad movies, that's the, that's the reason. Too many gangster movies. But uh, <laughs> So I went to Korea from six months old to six years old. I was raised by my grandparents. And then they flew me back to be raised by my parents in, in L.A. in uh, 1976. Now, one of the, the clear memories of, of, of coming to the States was... Uh, color television. We didn't have color TV in Korea back then. And there was Korean programming, Channel 18. And at the end of the Korean program, they would play the Korean national anthem. And I distinctly remember my sister and I standing up, putting our hands to our hearts, <laughs> and doing this. And my parents were like shocked. They were like, what are you doing? You're like brainwashed. And we're like, mom and dad, we need to see this, but Korea is the greatest country in the world. And this is our nation. We've got to pay homage to... And we're like brainwashed, right? <laughs> so in growing in Korea, you, you, look at the maps that they give you, and like Korea is in the middle of the map, and Korea is huge, and all other countries are really small, <laughs> right? And they tell you like Korea is the first to do this and first to that, greatest, the biggest wheelbarrow is in Korea, I don't know, <laughs> biggest like this is in Korea. And you come to America, and you're like people don't know where Korea is, and people don't know. I, I remember like people, my. My fellow friends at school didn't know like Korea. All they knew was MASH, right? <laughs> that's, that's the extent of their knowledge of Korea. And I would look at the map at school, and like Korea was a small little country, and like U.S. was a big country. But it took me like 10, 20 years to really <laughs> process that. Uh, Korea is not the center of the earth, but not even close. Well, similarly, the transition here, is uh, chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Now, we grew up, and I, I taught that verse so many times, preach the Bible, preach the Bible. And yet, last week, preach the gospel, right? The word is not the word? What are you saying here? And so thinking one way for so long, making that paradigm shift is not an easy thing. So I want to call a timeout and kind of clarify and answer some maybe questions to confusion that is lingering because of the shift. Mainly three points. Three points as it relates to preaching. I mean, this is such a jugular verse for us and just such a jugular verse for me because my life is preaching. This is what I do, right? Jan's a doctor, you're a stay-at-home mom, you're an accountant, right? If you're an accountant, calculator is your main, or QuickBooks, I don't know. Excel is your main, like, tool. If you're a computer programmer, I guess your computer is your main tool, your main work. For me, preaching is my main work. So it's a jugular text for me. So I want to address just three points. Ton Lagan, is it the Bible or the gospel? Secondly, gospel-centered exposition versus covenant theology. That question came up. And then third, it's not Bible versus the gospel, but law versus the gospel. It's not Bible versus gospel, but law versus. So let's deal with the first one. Keruksa Ton Lagan. Preach the word. You know, I misspoke last week when I said that the, the word being the Bible is the majority view. 
and that I was holding to the minority view. The better term that I should have used was the popular view. The common usage, the colloquial use, the, the common view is the word in verse 2 is the Bible. Uh, the, minor, the minority or the lesser common view, lesser, less popular view is that it's the gospel. But when we, do a, when we look at exegetical commentaries, these uh, technical Greek commentaries, whether it be NICNT, NIGCT, ICC, even uh, Kittle's 10-volume set on, on the Dictionary of New Testament Words, they all uniformly say that Tan Logon there is not the Bible, but it's the gospel message. Right. So all these good commentaries, these uh, Bible professors and teachers, and you know they're good commentaries because they cost so much and they're so thick. One of them is literally 900 pages. I've got a 900-page commentary in my office on the pastoral epistles. I read about 30 pages of it. <laughs> but it's 900 pages. I, I keep it there for, like, you know, encouragement. Um, <laughs> all these commentaries, right? Their interpretation is uniform. That the word is the, why? Because you look at the New Testament usage of the word. John 1:1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Tan Logan. It's the expressed word. It's the spoken word. It's the revealed word. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ. He is the word from God. He is the spoken word from God Himself. In Acts, the book of Acts, this uh, phrase, the word, is used synonymously with the word of God the word of the Lord, the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, the word of grace. And it's all used synonymously for the message of the gospel, for the message of Jesus Christ. So in Acts 2, the Jews in Jerusalem received the word of the Lord, received the gospel, and they were saved. In Acts 8, the Samaritans, these half-breeds, these, uh, these, these people who who have, have compromised the Old Testament, they received the word of the Lord. They received the gospel, and they received spirit baptism. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles, even they received the word of the Lord, the word, which is the gospel. They received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 19, the, these disciples of John, who were caught in a time war, these transitional people, who had heard of John's baptism, but they had not yet heard the gospel of Christ, when Paul preached to them the word of God, which is the gospel, they were saved. Acts 8.25, Acts 20.32 uh, confirm this. And in the epistles, we see how the word is used synonymously with the word, with the gospel. First <coughs> Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is a dunamis of God. And only one thing is called the power of God, which is the gospel, Romans 1.16. So this word from God, the word of the Lord, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to Christians, it is God's power. It's the gospel. Ephesians 1.13, I think it's clear here. Ephesians 1.13, in him and you also, when you heard the word of truth, what is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. And Paul defines it. Right? Paul identifies this word of truth. It is the gospel. And then pastoral epistles as well. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from, from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am chained as a criminal, but the word of God has not changed. You see here in these two verses, Paul is referring to the same, same thing, the gospel. You know, Apostle Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And these Gentiles had no uh, background in Judaism. So, we have some uh, missionaries to Japan right now, I think, from our church. Right, going around, I don't know if they're evangelizing or they're just eating. But <laughs> we have some people vacationing in Japan. So I've been to missions in Japan, and you go to Japan, and it's a totally unchurched, unevangelized country. Even concept of God, man, sin is foreign to them. You go to them, and you preach the gospel, because and you, preach, you preach Christ, and they have no concept of the Old Testament. 
they're Gentiles. You preach the law, you preach who God is, and you preach Christ. Likewise, the Apostle Paul was an apostle of the Gentiles. Without any background in Judaism, he would preach Christ, like Acts 17. And even the context in verse 3, he talks about there will come a time when people having itching ears will not endure listening to sound doctrine. The contrast is the word with doctrine. It's a message with message. So what is Paul saying here in chapter 4, verse 2? What is the progression of Paul's thought that culminates and preach the word? I believe what he's saying is, in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul is affirming the authority and the power and the inspiration of the Old Testament that these sacred writings, grammata, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. By learning the Old Testament, and you have faith in Christ, the Old Testament can lead you as the law to trust in Christ. In verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3, Paul is affirming again that all scripture, all graphy as God breathed, is inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. And it is profitable for sanctification for the messenger of God and to all of us as Christians. Scripture is profitable. But he pauses and he says, I charge you as one who has been entrusted by the Lord himself with the gospel. I've been appointed as a preacher, teacher, and apostle for the gospel. I charge you before God and of Christ Jesus who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom preach the gospel message. Preach the word of the Lord. Preach the message from God, the word of Christ, the word of his grace, the testimony about the Lord, which is, which is the gospel and gospel truths. It is the message of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15.2. This was consistent with what Paul did throughout his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 2, he went and, you know, I said this last week, they wanted wisdom. They wanted a display of power. And Paul had the ability to do both. He could have been sensitive to the culture. Right? He could have been a seeker-sensitive preacher and uh, met them at their felt needs and preached the gospel by way of eloquence with wisdom or preached the power by demonstration of miracles but refused, he, wa- he preached Christ and Him crucified so that their faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on the power of God. And that was just not isolated to Corinthians. Wherever he went, he preached. He had a single message. The gospel of God's Son. That is why Michael Horton said the gospel isn't one doctrine among many. It's not just one of many truths, but it is the primary article. He quotes Luther. It is the main hinge on which Christianity turns. It is the principal article, the foundation of all religion. So, that's what we've been doing for the past year. We've been preaching the gospel through God's word. And one of our leaders emailed me this week and termed it the gospel revolution. I praise God that gospel is uh, transforming the dynamics of our hearts where it goes below the surface. It's not just about doing this and not doing this. But it's about our, our motivational structure. It's about our heart condition, our spiritual attitudes, like what Ted and Nikki were saying about pride and self-righteousness, about fear of man, about self-centeredness, about being judgmental. Like these are areas that we are helpless to change, and only the gospel is, can do it, and the gospel is at work in our church. Now, for over, during that time, there's been a lingering question about expository preaching, and that's the second issue. Expository preaching. How does uh, our new gospel understanding affect our commitment to expository preaching? I mean, for those of you that are new, what is expository preaching? It is um, 
it is founded upon a specific hermeneutic. The interpretation. How, we, how do we interpret the Bible? We interpret the Bible literally, grammatically, and it's in its historical context. Literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. This is very important. You know, like our, our Reformation is based on grammar. Luther discovered the gospel because of an objective genitive case. Right? Can you imagine? A history of Western civilization was based on grammar. Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God was revealed from faith first to last. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God, if it's a subjective uh, genitive, that means it's God's righteousness by which he judges us. But if it's a genitive, ob- objective genitive case, then it's the righteousness that God gives to us through faith. The gospel hinges on that interpretation. And Luther, as a lawyer that he was, as a grammarian, he studied that text and discovered it was an objective genitive. God gives it to us. It is righteousness that he imputes to us through faith. And God saved him. And the real, the first gospel revolution began in the 16th century. And so that hermeneutic teaches us that we need to teach the Bible and explain its truths. We're not to use the Bible to support our own ideas, our own philosophies or whims. The preacher's job is to stand behind the text and to explicate it, to explain it where the listener goes away with the authorial intent of that passage and not the preacher's intent or not the denominational uh, interpretation, but the author's interpretation. So how does that relate with our commitment to expository preaching with the gospel? I think this is where many of you were very encouraged last week, where we articulated that we are unchanged in our commitment to expositional preaching. We are committed, as ever before, to the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the scriptures. We are not deviating from our commitment to this hermeneutic, nor are we deviating from dispensational theology. What is that? Three main pillars of dispensational theology, as opposed to covenant theology, is a literal hermeneutic, separation of Israel and the church, that God's promise, this unilateral covenant that God made to Israel still stands. He made this promise to Abraham and his descendants, and he will fulfill it in the millennial kingdom and the commitment to uh, premillennialism. There is a thousand-year reign where Christ will reign on the earth in Jerusalem, and that is prophesied in Revelation 20. So we maintain a literal interpretation throughout the scriptures regardless of of the genre. Whether it's epistolary or poetry or prophecy, we we, we stick to a literal interpretation. We are unchanged in our commitment to this. Some thought that because of our gospel-centered exposition, the fear is that we would see Jesus in everywhere. We would impose the gospel, impose Christ in every passage, every text, every verse of the Old Testament. And we have, um, you know, I, I remember reading commentaries on Song of Solomon. And these Puritans would see Jesus in Song of Solomon. And, uh, you know, the, the, the wife is a church. And in their zeal for Christ, they impose meaning onto the text. Song of Solomon is not, I mean, that's a lot of like hermeneutical gymnastics to see Jesus there. Right? It's a love song between a man and his wife. And it's a depiction on the fruit of a relationship that is based on God's love. A song of Solomon shows us what is possible when a husband and wife delights in God's grace and the love that is produced in light of it. It's not a message about Jesus in the church. The concern was that are we sliding into uh, covenant theology? No. We, 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 uh, we do not want to do that. What does it mean, gospel-centered uh, exposition? It means this, that as we go verse by verse through the scriptures, if the gospel is there, if 
grace is there, if Jesus Christ is there, then I'll just preach the Bible. I'll just preach that text because Jesus is right there. So as a way of illustration, when I preach uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, sacred writings which are able to make you wise through faith in Christ Jesus, before then, because even though I was committed to a literal hermeneutic, um, you know, we can't um, free ourselves from our biases, our prejudices, right? our own prejudgments. And for all of us, we have one bias that we cannot be freed from. Or no, two biases, excuse me. What is that? It's our sinfulness and our legalism. Every time we go to the Bible, right, we can remove our ethnocentric bias. We can, to a certain degree, remove, remove ourselves from that. We can remove ourselves from our gender biases or our historical gap or language gap. We can bridge those gaps. But we can't bridge on our own strength our heart sinfulness towards sin and our heart sinfulness towards self-righteousness and boasting of ourselves. So every time we study the Bible, we go in with it with sin and sin and sin and righteousness. And so, because, and so for me, I, I always knew I was a sinner in terms of my uh, irreligion. I never considered I was a legalist. So before I would study a passage like that, and I would gloss over through faith in Christ. I would not emphasize that truth. Because for me, sanctification was all about works. It was synergy. It was not about God's grace. It was all about what we are to do to grow as Christians. So I would gloss over that and focus on applications for everyone. And so how, how would I end that message? I would have ended it years ago. The reason you're weak is you're not reading the Bible. Right? The reason you're struggling as a Christian is because you're not doing your quiet time. When's the last verse you've memorized? John 3.16? Right? What is wrong with you? Right? My children, she's 7 years old, it was John 3.16, and she's working on verse 17, and you're still stuck on verse 16. That's the problem with your Christian, Christian life. And I would try to tweak your will by way of the law to get you, you and myself to grow as Christians. My latent legalism would affect my interpretation of the Bible. But now with the gospel, the gospel is clearly there. Through faith in Christ, we're made wise for salvation. We preach Christ. Now in verse 16 and verse 17 of chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed. We don't see a mention of grace or Christ or mercy of God or the cross. Then what would I do? I don't, I don't impose the gospel there. I just preach that text. But at the application section, at the end, Every teacher, every preacher, even small group or an FOF class or second hour, or especially on Sunday, every preacher has uh, the, the, the authority, the right, the stewardship to apply the text. So how did I apply that text? I applied it by calling people to trust in Christ, to be made competent, equipped for every good works. I called you not to turn into yourself, to work harder to make yourself a, a good work, a worker for Christ. I called you to turn to Jesus right, so that you might be a vessel for honorable use. That is the ch change. Right? That is the shift. So that if I were to preach verse 16 at a Jewish synagogue, they would kick me out. They would throw stones at me. They would get angry. Even a text where there's no mention of Jesus, I want to offend Buddhists. I want to offend Mormons, Roman Catholics. I want to see it as a stumbling block because I am preaching Christ. I'm a man under a charge by the scriptures to preach the gospel. If it's in the text, I preach it. If it's not in the text, I still preach it because that's always the application of every sermon. Repent of your sins. Repent of your unbelief, your rejection of Jesus Christ. You're not rejecting a portion of the Bible. You're rejecting God's Son. Repent and believe in Him and you will be saved. Our message must be distinctively Christian wherever we find ourselves. 
whatever we're pre- preaching from the scriptures. So as a man under charge, I charge you. I charge you to preach the gospel to yourself. That as you preach the law to yourself, that you would end with the gospel. As you preach to your spouse, that you would preach the gospel to him or her. As you train your children, that you would not forget that all the discipline, all the training, all the instruction is powerless apart from the gospel. And that as you go to the world, you would go not to make this world a better place, a more moral place, a place that is more um, obedient to the law of God. No, you would go, and you and I would go to preach the gospel so that men might be saved. Those are the two points, first two points I want to clear up. I hope that helps somewhat. Tan Lagan and uh, gospel-centered exposition versus covenant theology. The third point is uh, not Bible versus the gospel, but law versus the gospel. Now, so I, I am, and I, I've asked my wife, should I share this or not? You know, I, I am slow, right? I, you know, I'm quick, but I'm slow. You know, everybody's dumb about something, right? So I share about how dumb I am in some areas. You know, the smartest person here is dumb about something, right? We're all dumb about something. So this past week, we're putting up some linen closets in our master bedroom. And, uh, you know, we have to bolt it down to the walls because, you know, we don't want it to fall over and hurt me, right? So <laughs> so we got to screw it to the walls. But to screw it to the walls, you can't just screw it to the drywall. You got to find the stud, right? So I go, hey, Serena, I have a stud finder. I bought this years ago, never used it, but I still kept it. We could use a stud finder. And then I could use a tell a real bad joke about the stud finder, you know, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so dumb, right? So Serena was, was going all over the wall trying to find, you know, find the stud. I'm like, Serena, you don't have to go all over. You have to go you know, left to right because it finds the wood behind the drywall. And Surin's like, it's a magnet. How does it find the wood? I'm like, no, sir, it's not a magnet. Somehow it figures it, it <laughs> finds out what the wood is, right? It's crazy. There's no nails there. You gotta, right? And Surin's like, oh, really? Okay. And I go online, I look on Google, and I figure out, and I, it tells me it's a magnet. It, it can't find wood. It's looking for the nails that are, that are nailed to the wood. So, you know. That's how, that shows how, how dumb I am, how slow I am in some areas. It, when it affects home improvement, not a problem. When it affects like theology and and uh, you know our church, then that's a problem. And so, how did this affect us? You know, for for a while, people have been asking, uh, why is the word of God? Why does it seem like the word of God is pitted against the gospel? And so I would say things like, uh, the word is a means to Christ. So if you believe the word, you must leave the word and go to Christ. And so it implanted in many people's hearts this concern. Aren't, aren't the, isn't the word and Christ intertwined? Isn't it a beautiful marriage? Why does it seem like you're trying to drive a wedge between the two? Uh, you're almost trying to cause a divorce between the word and the gospel. And I thought to myself, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I'm saying. What am I saying? And this week, I read a, a sermon by Martin Luther in 1532, right? So it's been around. I just hadn't gotten to it yet, right? <laughs> January 1st, 1532. And the title of the sermon is The Distinction Between the Law and Gospel. Between the Law and the Gospel. The distinction is not the Bible and Christ. but It's between, the, it's between law and Christ, law and grace, law and the gospel. It is based on the text Galatians 3, 23 to 24 about how <coughs> the law is a guardian, a tutor that leads us to Christ. And this is what Luther said, somewhat lengthy, but I'm going to read. What St. Paul has in mind is this, that throughout Christendom, preachers and hearers alike should teach and man- maintain a clear distinction between the law and the gospel between works and faith, 
This is what Paul was instructing Timothy, that you be a a one approved, a worker who cuts straight the word of God. That you must cut it straight and cut it between law and grace. He continues, distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom. And that every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize and know and possess this art. Where this is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian, who is a pagan, and who is a Jew. That much is at stake in this distinction. Both of them, the law and the gospel, are the word of God. Both were given by God. But it is important to distinguish the two properly and not mingle them together. Otherwise, you will not be able to have nor hold to a correct understanding of either of them. If you co-mingle them, you confuse them, you lose them both. You will have neither, he said. Hence, it is a serious misunderstanding and indeed foolishness when somebody pleads, it is the word of God, it is the word of God, therefore it is right. The Word of God is not all of the same kind. It is of diverse kinds. The law is a different word from the Gospel. He said it is the highest Christian art. It is the most difficult of tasks. He said the Christian may never master them in their life on earth. And he said he never mastered them. Therefore he said whoever knows well this art of dividing the law from the Gospel should be given a place at the front of the room and be called a doctor of Holy Scripture. So, the Bible is summed up with these two categories, law and gospel, law and grace. John 1.17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is righteousness through the law, through perfect obedience, and there is righteousness apart from the law. And what is that? It's righteousness by grace through faith. Again, Galatians 3, 23 and 25. Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So that was, um, I should have been much more detailed, specific with my terminology It is not Bible versus gospel. It is law versus grace. And let me just review Luther's points on five differences between law and grace. Five differences between law and the gospel. The first difference is the law and gospel differ in the manner in which it is revealed. In the manner in which it is revealed. The law is inscribed in the Bible and also in the human heart. Right? The law is inscribed in our hearts. Though it is dulled by sin, our conscience bears witness to its truth. Romans 2. So all mankind, they're without excuse because God has given His law to everyone. That is why all religions of the world has the law. That is why when someone asked, Tiger Woods, how he could have done this, he said, I strayed from Buddhism. Because in Buddhism, there is a code. I think it's a third of the fifth, right? To be faithful to your spouse. So if you're a faithful Muslim, right? Faithful right? Mormon or, 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 or Jew, they're, they're, every religion has a law. Even, even non-believers. I think I read uh, Sandra Bullock was... Uh, his, her husband cheated on her as well. And I don't think he's a, he's a religious guy. He's not a moral guy, but he apologized. Even non-believers have a code, have the law in their hearts. Right. Gospel is different. The gospel can never be known from the conscience. It is not a word from within the heart. It is completely a foreign truth, an alien truth. Right. Without the Bible, we would... We cannot know the gospel. And it is so foreign, every fabric, every fiber of our being rages against the gospel. Rages against it. We are comfortable with the law. We know the law. It's, it's, It's instinctual, but not the gospel. Second difference is 
The law and gospel are distinct in what it does. In what it does. The law does one thing constantly. Uh, the reformers had a, a Latin um, phrase for this. Lex semper, semper accusat. Law always accuses. Law does nothing but accuses us. And the devil uses the law of God to accuse us. Right. Tells us what it, we must do. And it accuses us how we have fallen short of it. And so it, it terrifies us. It causes us this uh, uh, paralysis of the heart. It, 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 it causes us dread. And we're overwhelmed by guilt and shame because it never ceases to condemn us and accuse us. And so not just the content, the law and the gospel is not just what it contains, but what it does to us. So one verse on one day can be gospel to us, and the same verse the next day can be law to us. Like uh, you know, God's sovereignty. When we're walking by the Spirit, that truth is gospel. God is sovereign. God is in control. Through the gospel, He loved me. Next day, because of our sins, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in His holiness and righteousness. And, and I'm, I'm God is sovereign in His judgment toward me. And so it becomes bitter to us. So, so law is not just what it contains, but what it does to us. Remember a few months ago, we talked about Adam and Eve and how the presence of God, they would run to, Adam and, uh, run to God. But after their sin, when they heard God walking through the uh, cool of the night in the garden, they ran. Right? Because of their sinful hearts, they were being accused. The law terrifies, terrifies us, accuses us, prompts us to run from God right, because of our sinfulness. The gospel is completely different. The gospel uh, is, is a doctrine, it's a faith that does not require our works. It does not command us to do anything. It does not accuse us. It comforts us. It strengthens us. It emboldens us. It, 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 it heals. It restores. It saves us. It sanctifies us. The thir- third difference is uh, in the promise that each make the promise that each make. The law promises life. Leviticus 18.5 promises life and blessing to all who obey it. The law promises you obey me perfectly. God will bless you and you will live. The promises, uh, problem is uh, that, it, that that is impossible. It is impossible to obey the law. Matthew 5.48 unless you are perfect like the Father in heaven Right? That's the law. You, you must be perfect like the Father. Sinless. Without any disobedience. You break one part of the law, book of James, you're guilty of being a law breaker. It makes promises that we can't receive because of our sinfulness. The gospel, listen to this, the gospel is the promise The gospel is the promise. It bestows what it says. It gives what it says. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 talks about the minds of unbelievers, how they're blinded and they're kept from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. How God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It speaks of how out of nothing God spoke and there was light. In the same way, our hearts were dead. It was full of darkness. And God spoke. And He gave us that faith to believe. The gospel creates faith. The gospel doesn't provide salvation. And we have to, on our own, believe in the gospel to be saved. 
That's the Pelagian argument. That's the Arminian argument. And with that argument, salvation is impossible. What the gospel does is as we proclaim it, we give life. Because it doesn't promise something to those who meet the conditions. It gives life. It is the promise. So when we heard the gospel, that moment, it wasn't us contemplating, is that true? On my own independent will, I'm going to agree with it and believe. No, God is the author and perfecter. We heard the gospel, and through that logon, spoken word, just like He created ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of nothing, He gave us life through the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible? That's why we don't share the gospel. We don't like present the gospel and like kind of look at their response, see if if they're getting it or not, if they agree or not, as if it mattered. If they matter, their opinion, their judgment, their understanding matter or not. That doesn't matter. Salvation of the Lord. That's why we proclaim the gospel. We declare it. And through the gospel, God saves His elect. How amazing is that? The effects of the law and gospel are completely different. To sum it up, there is really one effect of the, of the law. One result is death. Right? It's death. It kills people. Right? People want to like, uh, you know, put the Ten Commandments all over America so that it will make this world country a better place. No, it's not going to make it a better place. And you want an example of that, look at Afghanistan. Right? They had the law. Right? They had intense law. And what did it do to that nation? Right? All these Muslim countries that have the law, all these Hindu countries that have the law, when the law is central, what does it do? It, it kills souls, destroys hope. That's what Romans, Paul said in Romans 7. And, and he identifies it. He, he says, it's not that the law is, law is good. Let me just read it for you. Romans 7.13 Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So you saying the law is good, but when the law came, I died. Why did I die? Because I'm a sinner. If I wasn't a sinner, I would live. Because I'm a sinner, when the law came, I died. It's the only thing the law does. You know, I'm happy, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? It, it reveals the standard of God, it convicts us of sin, and then it kills us. Destroys any hope of righteousness before God. What does the gospel do? Right. The gospel stills every voice of accusation with the strong words of Christ's own peace and joy. The gospel creates life. The gospel gives life. The gospel saves sinners. And the last difference is uh, the law is to be preached to secure sinners and the gospel to alarm sinners. So if you're a secure sinner, then the law is for you. If you're an alarmed sinner, then gospel is for you. Who is a secure sinner? Secure sinner is the one who glories in his own self-righteousness and thus justifies his or own sin. They, they, they are comfortable with sin. They see sins as little sins, as trifles, as not offensive to a thrice holy God because they are so confident in their self-righteousness or their rightness of their theology. And so the law is for you, 1 Corinthians 12.10. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall because the law is for you. What you have done is minimize the law and what the Bible does is maximize the law. So the Pharisees, they were confident in their own self-righteousness and they said, I never murdered anybody. I never committed adultery. right? And they were so proud of themselves and they justified their sinfulness. And Christ came and He elevated the law. He, 
He showed the true intent of the law. You said you've never murdered. If in your heart you hate somebody, God sees the heart. You've committed murder in the sight of God. You're a murderer. You boast that you have not committed adultery. God sees your heart. And if in your heart you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. The law uh, magnifies sin. The law reveals sin. It's for secure sinners. We are to preach the law. And so um, I think this is why this issue of idolatry is so powerful, so important for us. Because for us at Cornerstone, we can be very deceived uh, to think we're somewhat righteous. But idolatry reveals, this theology of idolatry reveals that our horizontal sins have a vertical effect. That all our sins, all our cravings, our passions, our lusts, are not just individual sins that we contain and that we commit against ourselves or commit against someone else. What that truth about idolatry tells us is that it's a first and foremost a sin against God. That we break the first commandment the greatest commandment, right? So when we, right, so sorry, Nick, I'm not, you know, picking on you, but, you know, you're the last to go. Hence, should have went second. But when we speak about fear of man, right, we fear our spouse. It's not just a sin between you and your spouse. The first and greatest sin is you're not fearing God. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It, 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 it magnifies it highlights what, you, what we are doing, that sin. When we are child-centered, it's not just, oh, I shouldn't be child-centered, right? It's not a good thing. No, if the children are the center of our lives, then it reveals that God is not the center. And so what we need to repent of is not just one little sin about loving our children too much. We need to repent of the greatest sin of spiritual adult- adultery, of not loving God. That's why exposing idols is so powerful. It's a way to, effective way of preaching the law to secure sinners so that we might see sin from God's perspective. We're secure sinners, preach the law, but to alarmed sinners. Who are these alarmed sinners? Uh, Matthew 5, they're the ones who are poor in spirit. They acknowledge, I'm chief of sinners. I, I am bankrupt in terms of any righteousness. I am, blessed those who mourn, they're mourning. They're grieving. There's godly sorrow over their sins. They're broken over their sinfulness. They are meek. They're gentle. They're reliant. They're, they're, they're like a land. They're dependent upon Christ. They hunger and thirst for a foreign alien righteousness. They don't boast about themselves. They glory in their weakness because their righteousness is foreign to them. It's only in God. It's the pure in heart. It's the peacemakers. To those who are alarmed, you preach the gospel. That's what Peter did. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, he begins by preaching, you crucified Christ. You people of Jerusalem, some of you were there and you cried out, crucify him. You murdered the Messiah. He preached the law to these secure sinners. And then what happened? Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart. They were broken over their sins. That they murdered God's only son. What shall we do? They cried out. So what did, how did Paul reply? He didn't give them more law. To alarm sinners, he gave them the gospel. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. So to close our time, uh, what is the condition of your heart this morning? Are you a secure sinner? Are you reveling in your sinfulness? Because in your confused theology, your righteousness or your rightness of your theology offsets your sins. So God will somehow condone 
your sinfulness. Condone your selfish or evil behavior. If you think that is the case, understand that whatever sin that you're condoning, it is a sin and offense to a holy God, and you have violated the very first commandment. Your sin is not contained within yourself, with another person, with a group of people. Your sin is against God. Because the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To fear Him only. If your heart is full of rationalizing or justifying your own life, and the law is for you, and have the law do its work, and have it, Galatians 3.24, drive you to Jesus on your knees. If you're an alarmed sinner, your heart is tender, soft, and broken, you acknowledge your sins, you hate your sins, you despise your sins, and you want to um, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the hope is not the law. The strength for you to live in a manner worthy of Christ is not to go back to the law and somehow pay penance. Maybe if I felt a little more guilty, a little more shame, if I felt a little more terror in my heart, maybe finally, you know, I memorized verse 17. That's not the answer, right? With your alarmed heart, it's to go to Christ and receive the assurance of the gospel and experience its uh, salvific and sanctifying power where you and I, we become the receivers, right? Not the doers, but we're the receivers. And that it results in us doing unto His glory. If you bow with me. We are um, taken aback, Lord, by the wisdom of the Scriptures and by Your wisdom, O God. Lord, the Gospel is so perfect to meet our needs where our hearts are full of sin and selfishness and self-righteousness. The Gospel is sufficient to, like a hammer and a fire, to break our hearts and cause us to repent and turn to you. But if our hearts are tender and soft and alarmed, the gospel has uh, sufficient to soothe and, and restore and heal and, and give life. So we thank you for your scriptures and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that uh, you would cause us to have such hearts that hear the truth of your word and and we hear the message of your son and to believe it. Lord, to repent of our sins, trust in you and so that we might indeed be a people that would uh, be your possession and uh, bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.